Would you open your copy of God's Word to the book of 1 Peter? The book of 1 Peter. We're going to begin today a series that we have entitled Being God's People. And we're primarily, during the series, going to be studying from and learning from Peter's epistles in First and Second Peter. Some of you might remember that we actually did a book study of First Peter in 2019 as a church, but we are going to approach First and Second Peter in a slightly different way, wherein we're looking for key themes that Peter wants to talk to us about regarding Regarding who we are called to be as the church of God. So I invite you to read along with me as we learn together from 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll pick up today's reading in verse 9 and we're just going to read through till verse 11. 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 9 through 11. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And this is God's holy, inerrant, and eternal word. May he add his blessing to its reading and its proclamation. When we think of church, we need to ask ourselves, what do we think of? What is the church? Now, Rachel already had the kids walk through this just a few moments ago. What picture comes to your mind first when you think of what is the church? What is the answer to that question? And for many of us, it probably looks something like this. We tend to think of the church primarily in three common ways. We think of the church as a place, a building. Now, I know as evangelicals, as Baptists, as people who've been taught well, you know, you always say, well, the church is not a building. But still, we think of that first for most of us. We encounter a church building and we go, well, that's a a church, right? But if the building's empty and no one's in there, is it actually a church? It's a church building. It's a space. And it may be a good space, a beautiful space. I love classic Gothic cathedrals. Natalie got to visit a lot of those in England and Scotland. She sent me lots of great pictures of these beautiful buildings. And I love those buildings, but they're not the church. They may be a space where the church meets, and they may be spaces that have been consecrated for that type of meeting, but they're not the church. A lot of us also tend to think of the church in terms of programs. And by programs, I simply mean all the stuff that the church does. Primarily, Sunday morning worship services. Is a church a church without a Sunday morning worship service? You may say, no. Well, then I would refer you to the book of Acts and just point out that your brothers and sisters for 2,000 years have had church without a Sunday morning worship service. Believe it or not, 
A church isn't made up of the sum total of their programs. There are all kinds of different programs, good things. It could be small groups. It could be uh, Sunday school. It could be Bible studies. It could be uh, all different kinds of ministries of service and, and, and loving on different people in different ways. And those are all good expressions of what a church is called to be and to do, but they aren't the church. And we can't confuse the two. You can have worship services with people who aren't part of a church family, and a worship service doesn't mean a church has occurred. Church is not programs. And finally, here's a word for you, polity. Now, I just picked it because I like peas. We're going to do a lot of peas today to begin our words uh, with in our, our sections. But, but the word polity actually has a meaning. It has to do with how churches are structured. Okay, when you think of a church's structure, its organization, the proper term for that is polity. So this is everything from their bylaws to how their leadership is designed and developed. And we can think of church in structural terms. How, you know, when you think of church, you go, well, here's the leaders in the church. This is the pastor. This is the elders. These are the deacons. This is the church council. These are the small group leaders. This is how we do church. It could include all of the ways that we express our biblical calling. Things like what you see on the banner over there would be a type of structural information that we give out to our church. We are, have a vision to glorify God and be a gospel-centered community to worship, proclaim, disciple, serve, and steward. And those things are all good and necessary expressions of what the church is called to be and to do, but none of that organizational trellising is the church. And we can get incredibly confused when we think of the church as primarily being a place or the programs and events and activities of the church or the way the church is structured. And the truth is, most of us think of the church first through these kinds of terminologies. But what if you were a church on the run? What if you were a church where your meetings were sporadic and irregular with your other believers because to meet together might be the last time you do so as a free person because you were being hunted and chased? What if you didn't have a lot of polity and structure because you barely had any scripture and what you did have, you just shared together and you prayed together in simple ways and occasionally you might celebrate the Lord's table together and you went out into all the places of life and shared the gospel and everything that you were doing? What if your church didn't have any programs? What if a a church didn't have Sunday school or small groups or, or anything? What if they just were people who had encountered Jesus Christ and were changed by that? That's the people Peter's talking to in his epistles. People who have experienced the good news of Jesus who might meet in a church of 12 to 15 people at all if they did meet. 
And so the letters that Peter's writing are to people scattered in all different places. And they would have received these epistles as in the form of a letter. They would have read it over and over again. Somebody in the congregation who was literate would have copied it down. And they would have sent it by some form of mail down the road to another church somewhere else. Another house where they knew a believer lived. And those people would gather some of their friends that had encountered Jesus. And they would read it. And the process would continue. Those people. Peter was writing to, and in the verses that we just read, believe it or not, Peter identifies the church using six different critical terms. And he doesn't talk about buildings, he doesn't talk about structure, and he doesn't talk about programs. He instead talks about us being God's progeny, his princesses and princes, priests, his purchased possession, and prophets and pilgrims. And we're going to use those categories to help us think through when we think the word church, do we first and foremost grasp the reality that God has called us to be a people, a certain kind of people, and that's what makes up the actual church. Now, the church may have programs. They may have a place to meet. They may have a lot of polity or a very simple polity, but guess what? If they don't have this, they're not the church. They're not the church. So let's kind of take that apart. So first thing Peter teaches us is that we are all God's progeny. That's another really, really good word. I picked it specifically because in Greek, when Peter says these words, let's see if we can get there. Oh, wow, we did not get that one. Uh, cleared. Go ahead and clear that screen if you can, Nat, and then just click on that next slide. We're working on it. Okay, while they're working on it, Peter says that we are a chosen race. We are a chosen race. And um, the reality is the word race there comes from the Greek genos, and it's saying that we are of Peter's genetic, or of God's genetic makeup. We are a chosen race, chosen by God to be part of his family, to be his offspring. And so that means that each and every person who is a Christian is a chosen child of God. So if you look at John chapter 1, verse 12, in the beginning of John's gospel, John says, here's something really amazing. Those people who heard the good news of God sending his son into this world to live a perfect life we could not have lived, to die an atoning death that we could not have died, and to be raised from the great force. Those people who heard that good news and received it, and who believed that good news, God did something amazing. He gave them the right to become his children. Children of God who were born not of their own will, their own decision-making power, but born of the will of God. Isn't that amazing? So the first thing you need to know about the church is they are God's children. They are God's children. And that has huge implications for us. There are people that through faith have been adopted into the family of God and therefore are part of God's eternal clan. And that means that we're called to become like our Father, right? To be like our Father. If, if we are children 
and we have the same spiritual genetics as the as God the Father, then we must be like him. So, as obedient children, Peter says, do not be conformed to the passions of your <coughs> former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, there's a way to read this that, that is correct that says you ought to be something. All right? You ought to be holy because you're Dad, your spiritual dad, is holy. So it's sort of like you could read this and say, well, uh, you know, you knew somebody whose father was a really good artist or craftsman, and you say, well, you ought to be a really good artist or craftsman like your father. But that's not the primary way this passage should be read. Rather, Peter is saying, your spiritual makeup has been literally changed. You are now holy, so now live as a holy person. You've been changed from the inside out. Before, you were unholy, you were an alien to God's righteousness, but now you've been made holy because you've been adopted into God's family, and now you are free to live a life that is holy. Live out the reality of your holiness. Okay, so... Being God's progeny is essential to being a part of the church. There is no one in the church that is not a child of God. If you aren't a child of God, it doesn't matter how many church doors you go into or how many church programs you participate in or whether or not you serve in church leadership, it does not mean you're part of the church. Does it make sense? Now, if you are one of God's children then what's going to happen here is this reality. Because you are the child of a king, you are a princess or a prince. You have been given royalty. So, let's see if we can do this here. Yeah, you are a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. Let's just focus for a moment there on the word royal. Have you ever thought of yourself as royalty? right? You know, uh, Natalie, again, was in England over the summer. She got to go to Buckingham Palace, you know, and stand on the outside there and take pictures and everything else. But you could go to the palace and guess what? You're not royalty because you don't get to go inside, <laughs> right? Only the royals get to go in certain places in the palace and only the royals get to put on the crowns, Correct? And Peter says, here's the thing, if you are a child of God, if you are part of that chosen spiritual genome, then you are part of the kingdom that Jesus came to inaugurate. Because remember, Jesus came to disrupt all of the earthly kingdoms and all the earthly structures and all the earthly plans. He came to establish his kingdom on earth. Uh, Jesus began his ministry by saying, the time is fulfilled the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. He said, I have come to establish a kingdom. My kingdom is now inaugurated. And then the crazy thing is, if you're a child of the king, that means you're royal family in the kingdom. And guess what? Jesus makes this even more explicit. He says, we've not only been named as a prince or a princess, 
we've actually been assigned a royal set of duties, a royal set of roles in God's kingdom. And in other words, you and I go nowhere where we do not carry the mark of being a royal. Now, I don't know if you know this, but, but being a prince or a princess, like in the British royal family, actually comes with specific duties. There's a job. And if you don't want to do the job, as perhaps some unnamed certain British royals have said they didn't want to do the job, what they found out was, guess what? You don't get the benefits because it's a job, Right? And as God's royal children, we have roles that he has called us to. Jesus says this, I assign you. Now listen to that. I assign you as my father has assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, the last part of that sounds great, right? I'm going to be in the royal family. I get to eat at Jesus' forever royal party. That's awesome. I get to judge the nations. And, and other passages of Scripture say I get to judge angels. Awesome. Who doesn't love a little bit of good judging, right? This is awesome. But don't skip over what Jesus said. I assign you a kingdom in the same way that my Father has assigned me a kingdom. What kind of king was Jesus? A servant king. Oh, he had authority over demons, over disease, even over death. But his kingdom was one of service and love, not dominion and power in an earthly fashion but authority to set people free and bring them into relationship with God. Brothers and sisters, to be the church is not to attend a chapel. It's to understand, I have been given a crown, and with that crown comes royal responsibility. I've been assigned a task. Now, Good news that continues, we are part of a forever royal family, okay? This is good news. This family continues forever. Some royal lineages run out. People get tired of kings and queens from various times and places, right? But in Revelation, we find out that the kingdom that we are beginning to experience now is just the very beginning. It's like the, the first line of the first chapter or the cover page, as C.S. Lewis said, of, of a grand adventure that's going to go on before us forever. In other words, we've just begun to experience the kingdom that God has for us. And so in Revelation 22, we find out that the God, God's servants will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more and they will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will do what forever? Reign forever. Your royal responsibility to the great king is a forever responsibility and a forever privilege. You will forever eat at the king's table and you will forever have the responsibility of being the king's child. So, 
Do you see already how Peter's thinking of church differently than maybe you and I think of church, right? No, no talking about, you know, which church place we're going to be meeting in and which structure we're going to have and what programs we're going to have and who's in charge. Here. No, no, no. Peter says, hey, church, let me remind you who you are. You're, you're God's children and you're royal, right? Then he tells us that we are God's priests. We are God's priests. We are a royal priesthood, right? Um, and so the reality is that as a royal priesthood, can we bring that one up without the other stuff on there? Um, we have been made into God's priests or representatives here on earth. Now, I understand Protestants, we get all squiggly right here, okay? I get it, you know. I'm a Baptist through and through, all right? But I'm Baptist in part because Baptists actually, for the last 400 plus years, have argued for something called the priesthood of every believer. We don't believe there are two classes of people in the church. There are no priests and laity. All believers are God's priests in this world. And we believe that because of this passage right here. You are a royal priesthood. We've been made into God's pre-earthly representatives, his priests here on earth. And Peter is going to, to lay this out in so many different ways, but so do so many of the other scriptural authors. Go to Revelation chapter 1. Notice there that we find out that we're not only forever kings, that we have this forever priesthood too. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom great. He's also made us what? Priests to God, his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Every believer is God's priest. You know, the early church, they were in a world where people went to physical temples and bowed down at physical idols, and then people would come to the Christians and go, where's your temple? And they go, we don't have one. It's here. It's inside me. And they'd say, well, where, what do you sacrifice? They said, my life. And, and, and people would say, well, you know, I mean, who intercedes between you and God? And they said, well, Jesus ultimately and me for my fellow brothers and sisters. Well, who leads your worship? I do. It's a radical redefinition of the nature of worship because that, in fact, is what God calls us to. We enter into and lead others into the worship of God, all of us. Not simply a worship leader who has a guitar or instrumental or vocal gifts that God has given them. All of us are worship leaders. That's why we work so hard here at Redeemer to incorporate as many of you as we possibly can into our worship services through readings and prayers and everything else because we believe we are all responsible to lead each other into the worship of God. Notice how the author of Hebrews puts this very explicitly. He says this, Through him then... Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Notice he uses priestly language. What happens when your singing is just not uh, whether or not you enjoy a particular song in a worship service? You're not doing that. You're offering up a sacrifice of praise. You're bringing a literal sacrifice to God to bring him glory 
and to bring other people to enjoy him. And that means as we look at life as a whole totality, we offer everything that we have up to God as an act of worship. Our lives become the worship services that are played out every day. We wake up in the morning and we have one goal, glorify God and enjoy him forever. Today, because today may be the only day we got, right? So what's your objective for the day? We offer sacrifices, our lives to God, and we don't do it because we want to earn God's favor or grace or relationship with him. We do it because we've already received it. It's an overflow of the grace that we have received. Peter makes this explicit just a few verses before we began our reading today. First Peter 2, 5, he says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It means when you do an act of kindness in Jesus' name at your workplace or to one of your children or at, uh, at a, the grocery store counter as you're checking out, that is a sacrifice of praise to the living God. Everything you're doing becomes worship. That comes with it, as you can imagine, a tremendous responsibility. Because we're responding to a God who sacrificed his son. And that means we all have a responsibility to lead other people into God's presence through the gospel. You know, a priest would invite people to come into the presence of the holy. Well, we do that as believers through the good news of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 15 puts it this way. The grace, Paul says, the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. Paul saw himself as a priest, not some guy wearing a collar or some guy who butchered a bunch of animals, he said, I have a priestly service. It's the good news of Jesus. And that is a service that we all share in so that other people, the offering of the Gentiles, and in Paul's case, could be acceptable to God, made holy by the Holy Spirit or sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So what have we learned so far? We're God's children, we're royal, and we're priests, right? Okay, so we also see that we are God's purchased possession. Now, here's the thing I want you to grasp. We entitled this whole series Being God's People because we wanted you to grasp that to be, in a, to be part of the church means that you are one of God's people. But um, if we are a people, we are a people for somebody's possession. We're not a people for our own agenda. We're not a people for a national agenda. We are not a people for making other nations great or our own national identity great. We're people for God's possession. In fact, the defining mark of God's people is that they have been bought by God because we once were not a people of God, but now we are the people of God. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. We didn't get what we deserved. And the result is that we are belonging to the Lord. 
We're chosen to be God's people by his grace. Now, there's numerous New Testament passages I could use to show you this, but I want to take you to an Old Testament passage here from the book of Deuteronomy. And have you ever wondered why God chose the children of Israel? Was it because they were the smartest people on earth? Was it because they had their act together? Was it because they were just more spiritual than everybody else? I mean, Abraham was off worshiping idols whenever he was picked. And if you've ever followed down his lineage, Jacob is no, uh, no really great guy, right? Okay? He just isn't. So why would God choose the Jewish people? I had a professor. He said, how odd of God to choose the Jews. He meant that in no diminishing capacity to the Jewish people. He meant that they didn't deserve it. <laughs> and neither did anybody else. And God says that expressly in the book of Deuteronomy. He says to his people, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you for what reason? To be a people for his treasured possession. Peter is reflecting almost certainly on this passage from Deuteronomy when he's writing this. And he says, what was once true, limited only to the children of Israel, is now true of all people who have been brought into a relationship with God through the grace of his son, Jesus Christ. You're now God's treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And then... He makes it more explicit. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were, in fact, the fewest of all peoples. And there's a way to translate that. It's like you are the weakest of peoples. You're the lamest. <laughs> Why did God choose you? Because I'm amongst the lamest of people. I had nothing to commend me to God's grace, right? And, and you see echoes of that across the New Testament. But it is because the Lord loves you, he chose to love you, and is keeping the oath that he made to your forefathers, right? That the Lord, be brought, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. Well, believers, guess what? You didn't earn your salvation. You can't possibly deserve the grace that God has given you. God chose you while you were enslaved to sin and has brought you out from sin's dominion to bring you into being his possession. And that means you don't belong to yourself anymore. If you're a Christian and part of the church, you don't have a bank account. You don't have a car. You don't have a house. You don't have time. That belongs to you. There is no me time. There is no my account. Everything about you belongs to God. All of it. Because you've been bought by the blood of Jesus. You were purchased there. Making this explicit, Paul writing to Timothy says this, Our great God and Savior Jesus Christ gave himself... For us, to redeem us, to buy us back from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Does that sound like God's negotiating with you and me about what part of our lives we're going to give him? Or is the whole reason that he bought you so that you belong to him? Right? 
We live for God now. And if you say you're part of the church, you can honestly say, I am not my own. I've been bought with a price. We live for him because God has both created us and has now also redeemed us. 2 Corinthians 5.15, one of my favorite passages, he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them. Who are you living for? Oh, I'm not saying give me your religious answer. I mean today, tomorrow, Wednesday, when you've forgotten this sermon, who are you living for? Who do you belong to? You can find the answers with what you do with your time, your money, and your relationships. Whatever you do there determines who you really belong to. So, the church, or God's progeny, right? We're his princes and princesses. We are priests, and we are his purchased possession. We are also his prophets. His prophets. You say, well, I don't feel like a prophet. Uh, anybody want to go put on some, you know, like animal hides and do the weird Old Testament prophet things? You know, I mean, just, you know, this morning we were joking about the fact that one of the Old Testament prophets had some kids make fun of his bald head. You guys know what happened, right? Just saying everybody should take note. She bears come out of the cave and like tear these little kids apart. So, that was one heck of a day at an elementary school. So, um, you know, I mean, it's, it's not good, right? Not that kind of prophet. Not that kind of prophet. Rather, 1 Peter 2.9 says that we are a people for God's own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are a people who have a message. To be part of the church is to understand that once you've been bought by the blood of Jesus, that now you have an overflowing message that comes out of your mouth. You speak God's truths to a broken, hurting, and dying world in the earnest hope that they also will join you as God's children and with the belief that they can become princesses and princes, that they will become God's priests here on earth, and they will be invited into that forever feast as part of God's purchased possession. You do this because we are controlled by our own experience of God's grace. Now, I want to just ask you this. When was the last time that you told someone about the Savior who you met and who bought you, and who loves you, and invites you daily into renewing relationship with Him. And then, take a look at this. When ordered to not speak of Jesus, the apostles said, even at the risk of their lives, we can't help it. Okay, let me translate the fancy Greek there. We can't help it. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. 
I'm not going to stop talking about this crazy relationship I have with God through his son, Jesus Christ, who I met because I watched the dude walk out of a grave. I was there the day he died, and then he showed up and said, hey, let's eat. They met a risen Savior, and it changed everything, and their life message was not about their bank accounts or about their career dreams or about their families, even all good and necessary things from God. Something happened to every one of these people where they said, we can't stop talking about Jesus. And even if you kill me, I won't stop talking about him. They had an overflow reality because they've been empowered by God's spirit to be his witnesses and his prophets in this world. That's exactly what it says in Acts 1.8. Jesus had said to them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. You will be talking about what you have seen and heard, right? Where? In Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You're going to go everywhere talking about Jesus because you've been empowered by the Holy Spirit to be God's witnesses, to speak prophetically to a dying and broken world. To be a part of the church must mean that you are part of a group of people who are compelled to speak of Jesus. I'm going to put this as bluntly as I can, if that isn't true of you, you have every reason to ask yourself whether or not you're actually part of the church. Hear me. Are you convinced that God has chosen the means and methods of our proclamation to others to be the bridge that he uses to save them? How did you come to know about Jesus? I promise you, somebody told you. It might have been a Sunday school teacher. It might have been a parent, an aunt, a grandma, a great-grandma, a preacher. It probably was a whole group of people throughout different phases of your life, depending on when you came to faith. Somebody came and told you the good news of God's Son. Because God has chosen the means of preaching and proclamation and prophetic witness. That's what he's chosen. Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he said, Since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach or proclaim to save those who believe. How do people who believe in Jesus come to saving faith? By you being silent. Now, I get it. Our lives need to speak the truth of the gospel, folks. I get that. And we can't be hypocrites because that negates the message. I understand that part too. But you also got to open your mouth and tell people good news. Tell them about what God has done for you. And you can do this confident in the good news message. Confident that the message itself, not you, not you, I promise you, you can't convince anybody to come to Jesus. You don't have the power, the insight, or the wisdom to convert anybody. You know why that's good news? Because you can't mess up a gospel presentation. 
because it doesn't depend on how perfect you are. It depends on the content of the message. Paul wrote to the Romans. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because the good news itself, the story of Jesus, not the perfection in how you tell it, is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, first to the Jew and then to the Greek. But guess what? It's not dependent on your skills. Now, I'm not saying be a poorly skilled gospel proclaimer. I'm just saying you can't screw it up if you tell somebody about Jesus. If you feel like you need to learn to be better at it, great, come talk to me. We can put you through some evangelism training and you can learn how to be better. But it's not your betterness that's going to save someone. The good news is the power of God unto salvation. So the church are God's priests. They're his prophets here on earth as well. Finally, Peter says we are God's pilgrims. We are God's pilgrims. Now, I had a little uh, pilgrim icon up there. I like what Rachel did when she made, uh, I think it was Bella's character, turn into an alien in the children's uh, message, you know. Um, Because guess what? That's what Peter says. He says, you're a holy nation. Something's weird about you. Let me translate that, okay? Holy nation. And he says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles on this earth to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. But notice, before he admonishes them to live holy lives, that he understands something about who they are. They're not home. The word sojourner means immigrant. Do you know why the church must have compassion for immigrants in all ages, at all times, in all places? Because you're one. (laughs) I don't know if you know that. I get it. You were lucked into a passport, into a national identity that none of you deserve. None of you earned it. But you have compassion on the immigrant because guess what? You are one. Because your earthly passport is temporary. (laughs) It's temporary. We are all passing through. We're passing through this earth. The author of Hebrews puts this so well. Look in Hebrews chapter 11 and it's repeated there over and over again. That that our spiritual forefathers died in faith, not having received the things that God had promised, but they saw them and greeted them from afar and acknowledged that they were what? Strangers and exiles on earth. He's using the same kind of terminology that Peter uses. There's something about being the church that means we recognize the temporality of this world and our temporary nations and understand that we have a greater citizenship elsewhere. And that defines us. It makes us peculiar. It makes us different. It's what makes us holy. All right? So Peter says a little bit earlier in 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17, he says, If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. Notice, you've been exiled. Hmm. Knowing you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. In other words, when you recognize that Jesus has bought you with his blood, it makes you into a weirdo. 
Now, I'm not saying a socially dysfunctional weirdo. I'm just saying it makes you weird. Your values have been changed. You're not living for earthly kingdoms. You're not living for the advance of your bank account. You're not living for how great your possessions can be here on earth or how many cars you can accumulate. You're not living to wait towards retirement because you've decided that retirement is the vacation you always wanted when you were 17. You recognize the reality is that every moment having been purchased by God is going to change your values and you're going to look different from the rest of the world. And the world isn't going to always understand that. And that's going to make you and me politically problematic. Here's what I mean. You are not defined by the donkey or the elephant. Period. If you are, they are your king, not Jesus. Your political loyalty is to the kingdom of Jesus. And that means you're not going to give any political party here on earth your loyalty. When they're wrong, you're going to call them out. When they sin, you're going to call them out. You're not going to minimize their sin or say, what about that? And that means you're not going to fit in here on earth when it comes to politics. You're going to critique both major American parties and all minor parties and all ideologies of all time because none of them are the kingdom of God. They may have good things in them. They may have good things that they can achieve. But guess what, folks? You should become politically problematic because your citizenship is not primarily defined by the flag of the United States of America, but by the cross. By the cross. Your citizenship is where? In heaven. In heaven. And from it you are awaiting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform your lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. You understand that someday every kingdom will bow down. All of them. So you, here's some good news. You don't need political power. You know, have you ever thought about the reality that Jesus showed up with the power of thousands of angels, one of whom could devastate easily 100,000 Roman legionnaires? And he didn't take over the world. He told Peter to put his sword back into its sheath because the kingdom of God doesn't come with the sword. Stop trying to dominate other people. Serve the king. Serve others. Finally, to be a pilgrim means that you're passionately pursuing paradise. You're passionately pursuing paradise. Here's what I mean. You're not yet home. Have you ever been on a really long journey and just thought, I can't wait till I get home. I know the Dentons were traveling, kept getting delayed this week. I was traveling. And, you know, there was at one point this week, I just was, you know, traveling. I was just like, I just can't wait to get home. Every believer 
has that sense inside them in the church. We're not yet home, folks. We know that. We may come to various resting spots along the journey, but we're not home. We're always pursuing our homeland. Seeking a homeland is the way the author of Hebrews puts it. We are the people who speak as if we are seeking a homeland. If we think of the land from which we had gone out, we would have had the opportunity to return. Listen, you may call yourself a believer in Jesus, but if you're constantly trying to return to the dominion of Satan, there's a problem in your relationship with God, and you probably ought to talk to somebody who understands the Christian faith a little better. Because you should be in pursuit of a different home. Because you're desiring something better than what this world can offer. You're desiring a better country that is a heavenly one. A heavenly one. And if you are, God is not ashamed to be called your God. And he has prepared for you a place, a city, in all eternity. What is the church? God's children, His progeny? Yes. What is the church? Are they, in fact, royal princesses and princes? Yes. What is the church? Are they God's priests here on earth? Yes, they are. What is the church? God's purchased possession? Yes. And His prophets as well and pilgrims here on earth. And notice Peter did all of that in three verses and didn't talk a single time about where the church was going to meet this Sunday or who was going to lead or what programs they were going to have. He said, this is who you are. RBC, hear me. In the journey that is ahead of us as a church, we will make choices about who we are before we make choices about all those other things. Even when those choices are necessary, they will be defined by who God has called us to be because that's what it means to be the church. So let's pray for God's grace to do that. Heavenly Father God, we are reminded right now that you called us to be your people. Now, we didn't deserve it. We couldn't earn it. We probably often, too often, forget it. So forgive us for the times we failed to be the prophetic voice you've wanted us to be when we failed to minister to people in your name, creating acts of priestly service and love, mending and helping people who are brokenhearted. Forgive us for the times that we weren't peculiar enough or didn't live like we were your possession. Times that we acted like this world was our home and pursued earthly things rather than your things. All these times we failed to act like your children. We need greater grace. We need you to fill us up with greater faith and to call our hearts forth to hope into the reality that we can be transformed into who you want us to be. And we ask for this grace not only upon us as individuals but as a church family that we would be defined by who you've called us to be rather than where we meet or what we do or how we're structured. We want to do all of this by your grace and for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.